Working Class Audio is brought to you by Universal Audio, Audio Technica, Loudon Audio, Focal Monitors, and Gearsluts.com. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 141. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Uh, thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 141 you're listening to. My guest today is my friend, Chris Salem from Montreal, Canada, outside of Montreal, actually. But uh, yeah, Chris Salem from Mixdown Online. Uh, Chris is one of the gentlemen that uh, joined us in Nashville at uh, the house of my brother from another podcast. That would be Lid Shaw from Recording Studio Rockstars. And he joined us for that whole time at NAM in Nashville. And uh, we had been friends previously just, you know, through our interactions on uh, our Friday morning video calls that we do with a big group of us. And, well, Chris, of course, uh, has been on that call for a while now. So seeing him and spending a week with him in Nashville gave me a chance to, you know, sit down and have a few conversations, numerous conversations, actually. So uh, got to know Chris a little bit better and uh, know a little bit more about his world. And I said, you know what? You should be on the podcast. So he's a producer. He's a recording and mix engineer, and he's renowned for his work in the French Christian music industry. And he's produced and mixed artists in Canada, U.S., France, Belgium, Switzerland, and uh, of course he works remotely with many of these artists uh, out of his studio, which is, like I said before, outside of Montreal, Canada. He's also the creator of Mixdown Online, which is at mixdown.online, and that's a resource and website and YouTube channel designed to help musicians and home studio owners with their music production and recording and mixing skills through uh, kind of a YouTube tutorial type thing, so check that out at mixdown.online. So Chris Salim coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Hey, I don't know if any of you saw it, but I did a follow-up interview with uh, guest Robert Scoville, who is on WCA number 140, and I put out a video uh, that came out on Facebook and YouTube. So if you haven't checked that out, go on over to, uh, I, uh, probably the easiest way for you to do it is to go over to the uh, uh, YouTube channel. Sorry, I'm grabbing my coffee here, what remains of it. Mm. Yeah, go on over to the YouTube channel and check it out. What I did was, is I showed up to the Greek Theater in Berkeley, California, and met up with Robert, and we were just about to do the interview, the follow-up interview. <laughs> Guy comes up and he goes, that's ah, off. We're canceling. Tom's got laryngitis, and I was just kind of sitting there stunned because it was like two hours before the doors were to open. And uh, I, you know, seen had seen the people, of course, you know, parking and lining up outside. I was like, wow, it must be serious if Tom's going to cancel because I've seen him a number of times over the last decade and uh, he's never canceled. And uh, in fact, Robert told us that it's uh, he could probably count on one hand the number of times Tom has canceled in 35 years. So obviously it was serious, but I'll be back there on Monday. I did do the interview, of course, like I mentioned, but uh, I'm going to go back Monday, which actually is the day that this podcast comes out. So I'm going to go and visit with Robert and watch the show. So looking forward to that. I want to talk about something recently I've been, you know, I mean, you know, I work from home. Those of you that listen to the show, so you know that I, I, I mix and I master out of my home and I do occasional overdubs and whatever audio related stuff I can get done at home, I do. Obviously that comes with some pitfalls because you sit on your ass all the time. And the problem with that is, 
you know, you sit on your ass and you go to the kitchen for a snack and then, you know, you start to gain a little weight. And I think I've gained a little weight uh, over the course of the podcast. There's no doubt about it. But uh, one thing that I've been doing recently uh, to kind of keep that in check and kind of just get a break mentally and uh, also, you know, uh, to prevent ear fatigue is I just get up and I start doing chores around the house, whether it's laundry, whether it's sweeping. Um, and also something that I've been doing recently is a uh, purging, you know, a, a continual purge. I have to do like, you know, always purging, getting rid of stuff, figuring out like, is it garbage? Can it be recycled? Can it be sold? All that kind of stuff. So that's been something that I've been doing and I highly recommend it to you. Figure out what it is at home you could do if you do work out of home all the time. Get off your ass, friends. Got to do it. Got to stay healthy. I'm, I think my interactions with Robert Scoville actually encouraged me because he, uh, of course, has the HTFU, the harden the fuck up aspect of his uh, workout program, which you can, of course, uh, check him out on his YouTube channel, which we've mentioned before. I uh, also want to give a shout out to our friends over at Gearsluts.com. Of course, we are sponsoring the uh, sub forum, which is known as uh, Audio Life. So be sure and check that out and check this out. Universal Audio. I've been telling you they're going to have the... Uh, Apollo Dream Rack Studio promotion come to an end. Well, that was supposed to happen on August 31st, which of course happens this week. And I just looked at the website and discovered that they're extending it. Yep. They want you to uh, take advantage of getting those plugins. So they're taking it to September 30th. So uh, that's well after I get back from Mix with the Masters on September 30th. So almost a whole nother month. Yeah, that's right. So check that out. Go to uh, uaudio.com. I'll put the link with the specific directions to go to the very promotion I'm talking about in the show notes so yeah that's it all right the coffee's gone and uh i think we're ready to go so why don't we do that let's get on over to our discussion and have uh, a nice chat here with my friend chris salem here on the working class audio podcast Chris Salim, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me, Matt. Absolutely. For the audience, we've known each other for a little bit because we do this Friday morning, early Friday morning for me. It's three hours later for you. So it's like nine o'clock for you, six o'clock for me. Yeah, it's 9 a.m. for me, yeah. Uh, we do a video call with a, a group of other podcasters, bloggers, and YouTubers. It's what we call a mastermind call where we all just kind of get together and talk about what we're working on. And that's how Chris and I initially met, but we got to meet in person and hang out at our friend Lid Shaw's house. Lid Shaw, of course, from Recording Studio Rockstars. And uh, we got to spend some time together hanging out, uh, going to the NAMM show. So uh, it was quite a fun time. It was a fun time. Yeah. You could kind of get to know somebody a little bit over the course of time over a video call like that, but really just to get to know them a little better, to spend time with them one-on-one, -on -one, I think is is important. And and I felt like I really got to to know who you are a lot better at NAM and kind of see that we actually, there's a lot of similarities in our lives, which oh, yeah. is kind of funny. It was funny. surprising, actually. <laughs> it was kind of shocking. It was kind of shocking. Uh, yeah. And even down to the geekiest thing, we both use the same wireless mouse. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> That's how stupid of exactly. and, and minute we're getting here. Up to that point. Well, I want to talk a little bit about your past. I definitely want to talk about what you're doing now. So let's start with the fact that uh, you're in Montreal in Canada. Yeah. And uh, tell me a little bit about your world as far as how you got into music and songwriting and production. First of all, yeah, I live in, I live in Montreal. I'm a French Canadian. So that's why I have that accent, which is not from Texas. <laughs> it's a French Canadian accent. <laughs> Never so, would have yeah. mistaken that for a Texas accent. <laughs> 
<laughs> I guess not. Um, yeah, I started, you know, my music career 15 years ago on a full-time basis. When I was younger, I started playing drums. I was 12, I think, and, you know, playing in church bands and stuff. This is where I grew up as a musician. So I, I wasn't into music production at all back then, not even in my teenage years. So uh, that came up later on while playing in my first rock band, uh, which was a Christian band at the, uh, at the time. Mm -hmm. We first released a, fr uh, a French album back in the day. And that was uh, like, you know, with that small market, it was kind of successful. That was back in 95. Mm -hmm. And we, uh, we went to France for a mini tour. And so that was my first trip as a... Uh, a working musician, so it was quite cool. I was 16 at the time. That was my first steps as a music player and um, going towards music production later on. And then, we, you know, we uh, decided to go on the, uh, with the same band, we changed our name, our band name, and we decided to, to go towards uh, the English market, uh, again, on the Christian side. That was, that was quite cool. We, uh, we recorded the first album in 98, and back then it was all done in a home studio. It was the first time I got introduced to the home studio concept. Uh, the guy that was uh, renting the studio to us, it, it was set up with ADATs. So it was all digital, but with ADATs. Yeah, so like back then, you know, I wasn't into production yet. You know, I was just there for the recording and stuff. And oh, man, it was kind of... Um, like I knew I was, you know, there was something there that I liked, you know. Actually, when I first started to play music, I, I you know, I knew I, I wanted to be a music producer, uh, but I didn't know how or when, you know. So it was pretty interesting. So, yeah, we, we released that album in English. We toured Canada. We toured a bit in Europe, a bit in the States. We uh, ended up with some management in Nashville. Um, you know, there's a lot of Christian music going on in Nashville. So that was the place for us to, uh, to be. So we, um, I went to Nashville twice at that time to... Uh, to do some showcases and record demos and stuff or a kind of a press kit to, to get signed, you know, to get a record deal. So that was the, the big thing at the time. You know, you were a band, you were just getting your, your demo package together and shopped for a record deal, which is not something that we see often these days, you know, everybody self-produces themselves and, you know, release their songs on Spotify and stuff. So it's, uh, it's like a different reality in 2017. But back then, that was the way to go. That was almost the only way to do it. Yeah, I remember, I mean, when I left southern New Mexico, where I grew up, you know, our band at the time, the Sextants, you know, we moved to San Francisco specifically because we wanted to get a record deal. And uh, I just remember certain people telling me, oh, you don't want to do that. That's a one in a million chance. That's never yeah. going to happen. And not only did it happen, but it happened two times. <laughs> Look at that. One with one band and another time with a, with another band. But back to your point of getting a record deal at that period of, of time, that was the focus. And I think that is one thing that we share in common is, is that, that early kind of exposure to the traditional record industry. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, it was kind of a dream, you know? It was the dream to get signed, and that was like the big thing, you know? Which was correct to some point. Mm -hmm. uh, but at, so, uh, at some point, it was also misleading, you know? So... It will. It was maybe you know. You just you know put so much focus on that you know that you can tend to forget the most important thing about you know writing music and play gigs and get out there and get known. You know. Can you imagine if we had the internet back, back then, back in the nineties, in the oh early nineties, like that? <laughs> but we we had the internet, but not to the point of, <laughs> as we have right now. You right, know? <laughs> right. It'd be a different story if we had it then. Oh no! With the tools we have now. Man, it's uh, it's uh, the new reality. Uh, I kind of like it, you know, the way it is right now. 
in a sense, you know, it's debatable, but from my perspective. That's actually a good transition too, because the way you work today uh, with clients is, you know, people aren't, you know, flying into Montreal typically yeah. to, uh, to work with you. I do a lot of stuff online. Like the internet is like the main part of my business. So tell me a little bit about your workflow and how that works, whether it's a mixing client or whether it's a songwriting client. Mm. Tell me about some of the different transactions that you have with people and different experiences. I work a lot in the French Christian music scene. Mm-hmm. Um, so it is a small market. It's a market that is here in Quebec, in French Canadian Quebec, and a lot in France. So I end up, you know, working with a lot of French artists from France. So that means I need to use the web to do my work. And um, yeah, so my workflow all has to do with communication with the client. So that's the main key here. Mm-hmm. You know, because you know you're not sitting in front of the the person, the artist, the artist um, in the studio most of the time. You know, you're working through Skype or Facebook Messenger, video calls and stuff. And this is the way you communicate. So I think the communication needs to be top-notch, and this is the most uh, important thing uh, to get something going on here. So uh, I first started to do the online online, uh, music production back in 2006. That was my first client I got from Europe. And now if we go back to, uh, to 06, Skype wasn't the way it is right now. It was like the beginning of video conferencing and stuff online connections they were you know a bit lousy so it was a bit harder back then but still doable so what i do i usually work the pre-production stage with the client online on skype and stuff Um, the client sends me his songs i work with my production team i have like a guy uh, jimmy is a very good friend of mine and uh, we uh, we work a lot of arrangements together Hmm. music arrangements so we uh, we work on the songs we build that up with the uh the client's approval at the end so the client is not on skype while we're working um you just you know we just share a dropbox folder and that's the way we we work so we work on the song we send it on dropbox the client listen, listens to it and you know we that's our start point okay and how are people finding you how are they deciding I'm going to call Chris and I'm going to hire him to to work with me on this project. When I first started on a full-time basis, that was back in 2003, I went to audio school for a year here in my home, in my town uh, near Montreal. And a very good friend of mine was already a known artist in the French Christian market. He wanted to give me my first chance on producing an album. So it was, it was pretty nice from him. So he asked me, he called me once and he told me, Chris, um, can you record and produce a live album? I want to do a live album. And are you capable of doing so? I said, yeah, sure. Why not? You know? And I remember I was just out of audio school back then. And I hanged up the phone and I was, I told myself like, okay, how the heck am I going to do this? <laughs> and, um, I just did it. I surrounded myself with the right people and I just did the production. It went well. And that was my first main production. And from that point on, that guy, you know, was already touring Europe. So he was known in France and, you know, from word to mouth, you know, people read the the credits on the albums and they, you know, they like what they hear. And there you go. I started to uh, to get some calls. And on his side, he, he hired me for a second album the same year. And then I got my first call from a guy from another artist from Montreal, wanted me to produce his album because he heard the, the work I've done on that first artist. And, you know, the ball started rolling at that point and uh, my name started to, to go around in that uh, market. And people just started to to call me. In the world of Christian music, are there subgenres 
or like subgroups of different types of Christian music? Yeah, yeah. There's pop music, there's rock, there's worship rock, you know, there's uh, gospel, R&B, you know. It's different genre of music. It's not like only one type, you know. But there's the main, you know, there's the main style, you know, modern worship music. That's the main thing going on right now. But, you know, you, you can get a lot of different style of music, which is interesting, you know. So it had me work on different type of music at the same time, so. What is the bulk of the work made up of? Mixing or production or songwriting? All of the above. Maybe mm. not songwriting as much, okay. Uh, a bit of music, you know, composition maybe you know for some for some song parts like for example if the artist has one chorus and one uh, one verse and you know does have anything as a bridge and we feel doing the arrangement that you know maybe a bridge could be a good idea at that point you know i'm just gonna write a bridge i'm gonna write something and you know maybe suggesting like a middle d for uh, for a bridge and i let the the artist work the lyrics and we we can have that kind of collaboration uh, it doesn't happen often but it happens but most of the time, it's music arrangement, you know, music producing in general, recording, mixing. And if I mix stuff, I send, I send the mastering somewhere else. How does the Christian music world differ from, I guess, the non-Christian music world? I mean, other than the, the religious basis of it, but is it differ from a business perspective? Does it differ from sales? Do people buy CDs anymore? Um, yeah, they do. They still do. Less than they... They used to, you know, back in, you know, when I first started, like CD selling with CD sales were way up. Um, so it, it like on the French side, anyways, on the French side, it's a bit slower than the rest of the music scene. Uh, now people are starting to buy songs on uh, on iTunes and listen to uh, to streaming services for French Christian music. But even if you go back five years, people were still. Uh, buying CDs a lot in libraries and stuff and music stores. Um, now, artists are going to tend to sell their CDs when playing live. That's it, you know. But on a distribution uh, format, they're not going to sell a lot like they used to. So it has changed a lot in the past five years, I have to say. Do you operate exclusively in the Christian music world? No. Or? Okay. No. No, I take whatever comes. And do you notice differences in personalities and how people deal with their business, their their recording, or is it just all just music and people and, and the typical variances that you would see in either of those? I think it's mainly music and people. Okay. Maybe the main difference would be with personalities, maybe, you know, but as far as the artistic side goes, it's about the same. Got it. Okay. For me, like I'm doing a job, you know, it's, um, I'm producing music. So whatever it's Christian or, or a secular music, I, I, don't care much in a sense, you know? Mm -hmm. It's all music. My job is to produce the best product possible for the client I'm working with. Okay. Interesting. Now, you work out of your home primarily. Yeah. Uh, which is where I'm talking to you right now. Exactly. If I recall correctly in our past conversations, you've done some significant work to your spot there, which is, I believe, in your basement. It is. <laughs> That's what we have here up here in Canada. We have a lot of basements, you know? Every home has a basement, you, most of it anyway. Yeah, you and everybody in the United States Midwest. Exactly. <laughs> it's funny because when I go to Florida, it's the complete opposite. You know, there's <laughs> yeah, there <laughs> not many houses with basements. instead of basements. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, it's in the basement. I um, My first studio was in a, we call that a bungalow, you know, small house, mm -hmm. one... Uh, um, how do you call that? Like an in-law apartment, like a like a house behind a house. 
It's a one-floor house, basically. Oh, okay. With a basement. Okay, that's a bungalow. You have one basement, one store, uh, one floor, and that's it. Oh, I see. And uh, so that was my first studio. My first studio was in that basement. And, you know, soundproofing-wise, it wasn't the best. You know, I just did, like, tiny acoustic stuff with panels. and But that was the first studio. And, you know, I had my kids uh, back then. They were, I think, were, like, three years old. For, yeah, three, four years old for my uh, oldest. And my, my youngest was just born back then. So it was a bit hard at that point to do some recording at home, you know, since, you know, the studio wasn't made soundproofing wise. It wasn't like that super soundproof. So it, it was hard to do some, for example, um, recording vocals in the studio while the, the kids are running upstairs and stuff. So at some point, we just needed to to think of another way of of doing things and the business was going well. So we just decided to sell the house and build ourselves a house, you know, from scratch where we, so we, with the studio in mind, oh, that's wow. what I did. So let's talk about that because that's, yeah. that's an interesting <laughs> perspective. It is. When you were coming up with the design of the house, did you tell the architect or those designing it, Hey, this is kind of the goal. Yeah, I, I told that to the, the main architect, but the part of the basement, which is the studio now, um, the plans were made by a specialist in that field. So I hired someone to, to make me a, a very nice studio plan. What were the specifics with regards to your plan? The way we build the house here, like normally a house will have, will end up with an eight feet ceiling in the basement. Okay. Now on my end, I ended up with an 11 feet ceiling. Oh, wow. Okay. So my house is a bit higher than all the houses in my area. So it's not deeper, but it's just a bit higher three feet uh, higher than everyone else. So what I did, I hired that guy to that architect, a studio architect, to, um, to, to set me up with a very good plan, a studio plan for the basement. And uh, I took care of it. I was the, I self-contracted that part. Okay. So I hired my, you know, the, uh, the workers and stuff. I hired three workers and we went through the plan. And the plan was a very detailed plan. It was very expensive, but everything was detailed to, um, you know, to all the, the, the material we need to buy and stuff like that. So that part went well. Um, of course, you know, I have some regrets and there's some stuff I probably uh, will not do again if I had to do that the second time. But it ended up being a very well soundproof studio uh, where my kids could be kids, run, jump, do whatever kids do, mm -hmm. you know, upstairs while I'm working and it doesn't matter at all. So... Uh, the result, the end result was very good. Excellent. And, and yeah. is the construction of the of the main walls, is it uh, cinder block by any chance? Oh, man, I forgot the, uh, all the layering. There's so much layering there. There's, uh, yeah, there's GIPS, uh, GPROC. There's some, we call that MDF. Mm -hmm. There's some Sonopan. Uh, and there's some space. There's some empty space, of course, because it's like building a box within a box. Okay, so all the rooms, I have like three rooms. And none of these rooms touches each other, okay? So there's always, like, at least a two-inch space of dead air between each rooms. Wow. So, and that is the best soundproofing, you know, you can, you can get, you know, it's... Dead air. Air. That's it. Hmm. So did you take up the entire bottom of the house or just a smaller portion? I took, um, I would say, like, 70, 70%. Okay. Okay, we, I still have my my laundry room, you know, and a small living room downstairs for for the family. And because uh, this is my, it's a home studio. It's my project studio. It's not a studio I rent to strangers. Okay, it's I'm the only one working here. 
with some exceptions. You know, I have like maybe two person, two other person I can rent the studio uh, to, you know, if I, if they want to, but that's it. Okay. Did, so you created a control room. Did you create any other rooms? Yeah. I have my control room. I have a booth, a vocal booth, which is way smaller, which is right in front of me mm -hmm. behind the window. And I have my other main recording room, which is a bit, it's about the same size as my control room, uh, about, I don't know, 20 feet deep by 16 or so, but with a lot of angles. So there's no straight walls here, so, and which is a good thing. Did you do anything specific to the electricity? Yeah, it's a different panel. The pa there's one ele electric panel for the studio only, mm. and the other ones for for the house. I think I have like three panels total. Okay. Yeah, so that helps. Uh, Canada is on the same power structure that uh, yeah. the U.S. is, correct? Exactly. Okay. Yeah, same thing. Interesting. Yeah, so it worked out well for me up to now. Um, if I was to do it again, I would probably try to save a bit on money and, and do that maybe on a, you know, in a different way. Mm. Yeah, I was very emotional back then. You know, it was my first, you know, uh, first experience as building a studio from scratch and it was like, okay, I need that so bad. So, you know, you tend to buy stuff you don't really need and that will not benefit you, you know, a hundred percent, you know, you could have just do it, you know, in a regular way it would work as well, you know, but I was just emotional, so I spent a lot of money for nothing, <laughs> in my opinion. <laughs> so the work that you do out of here comp is comprised of, as we've discussed, um, yeah. you know, songwriting, production work, mixing work. But you and I in past discussions have talked about you do some work out of your uh, local church. Yeah. Some sound work there. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, this is another part of the business, um, doing live stuff. You know, I did a lot of, not a lot, but, you know, some live mixing uh, gigs uh, over the years with some, you know, uh, bands, local bands and stuff. And I ended up working at my local church, which is kind of a mega type of church. Mm -hmm. um, so I've been there for four years, working on maybe two evenings per week uh, and the, the Sunday morning as well. And they, they hire me, you know, it's, it goes for my business. It's a service I offer as a business. And um, that works out pretty well. It's fun work. People are nice. You know, it's all people I know. It's, you know, all friends and um, nice gear to work with. And yeah, it is fun, you know, doing, you know, mixing FOH, mixing monitors. Every, everyone is in your, in your monitors and we have like a separate mixing console, um, all digital mm -hmm. consoles. So it's fun. It's a very cool uh, place to work. And we have a studio as well at the church where we do some live Facebook um services on Sundays. So all the the music is mixed in that studio and is sent directly online. Interesting. For live streaming. Yeah. You know, just in terms of of a, of a working type environment, you know, that's, I think, a, an overlooked area for a lot of up and coming or even established sound people when you're trying to diversify your income. Uh, there's a lot that can come from that, from working at a church, because you get to work within your community, you get yeah. to work on sound and it's it's something that people should entertain if they're looking for more work number 1 and number 2 if they're if they're looking to you know just get more experience in certain areas especially front of house and yeah you know, definitely there's a lot of multimedia aspects that can come into play at a church for for what their needs are when you have access to that type of church you know, where it's kind of a high tech church. Um, the technology is the, is one of the, is very important, that type of service. So we have like 
a, uh, a camera crew, there's a video production team, mm -hmm. you know, the audio team, professional music players. Um, so it is fun. It is fun to to be part of that and to to work in that kind of uh, environment. And you learn a lot, that's for sure. Do you think one has to be religious to work at a church in that capacity? Um, maybe not, but at some point, I don't see how can someone who doesn't believe is gonna is gonna like being there. You know, at some point. Yeah, I, I ask because <laughs> I'm not a religious person, but I could I could see. You know, I've I've done some consulting work for churches in the past, but it's, it's an interesting thing. I mean, I think it is, you, it's up to the individual and up to the situation. Obviously it's not a blanket. Yeah, uh, I think so. Uh, there's, it's not like, you know, one size fits all, or it's not exactly, you know what I'm yeah, saying? Yeah. Cause I, I, I've, you know, I've been with people working at church that are not believers and they, they were hired to, to be a musician for us, you know, uh, one service or mm -hmm. we needed like a, we needed a certain type of musician. We hired a professional and, uh, most of the time, the people enjoy it. You know, even people that doesn't don't come to church usually are not churchgoers. They're gonna end up, you know, being part of the service, playing on the uh, on stage, and you know, feeling very good about it, mm -hmm. and uh, coming back after when we we call them. You know, and so yeah, that happens. That happens, and I, yeah, I guess it it ends up to be to the individual to to decide whatever it's good for him to be there or not. Chris Salim here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. It's that time we are going to take a sponsor break with our friends over at Audio-Technica and remind you that they have recently introduced the AT5047, which, of course, there's a link on the Working Class Audio site. So be sure and check that out. Now, that's a newer mic that they've done, uh, but with a similar kind of setup with those rectangular capsules. So uh, be sure and check that out. If you're in the, in the market for kind of a, a higher dollar, and what I mean by that is it's $34.99 retail price. I'm sure you could find a good price online for that, though. Be sure and check that out. Be sure and uh, consider it. Take it for a test run. See if you can go to your local pro audio dealer or, or see if you can find some samples online and uh, check it out. And that's at uh, audio-technica.com. That's the 5047. So uh, let's get back into it with our friend Chris Salem here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. I want to talk about Mixdown Online, which is your online presence of a YouTube channel and mm. uh, some coursework and some uh, training videos. Tell me a little bit about how that came to be and what's, what's it all about? Now, I started that a year and a half ago or maybe two years ago. That was back in late 15, so December 2015 when I uploaded my first YouTube video. Um, I guess people were asking me, you know, you should do stuff like that. You know, you should be online. You should share your knowledge and stuff. And, you know, I, I, th I thought about it, but there's already people doing so online. So why should I? And I just decided to do it, you know, decided to share the knowledge I have as a music producer, as a, I would say, an independent music producer who didn't work with a lot of big artists, but mainly local artists and people overseas that are not super known. And, you know, I still did that on a full-time basis for 15 years. So there's something I have to say here, you know. There's some stuff I can teach. There's some stuff uh, that people can learn from. Um, so that's why I started to mix down online, you know, to, to help musicians to, uh, to get their productions, you know, the best they can. Um, you know, people, the, the market has changed, okay? Um, people are not recording... Uh, are not like hiring music producers as 
much as they used to. Um, now, there's a lot of self-production self -production going on, and people tend to record themselves in their home. They buy a sound card, they um, buy a microphone, they produce themselves, they record their ideas, and this is what they do, you know? So the market is going towards home production. I might as well help them out, mm -hmm. you know? So that was the, 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 the initial thought of going online, sharing my knowledge, helping people out, and we'll see what happens. And for the listener, the uh, the URL for that is actually mixed down dot online. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So, uh, but even if you even if you type mixdownonline.com, it's going to go to the same place. Okay. Okay. Uh, I own both. You own both, and you do it in English and in French, correct? I started to do it in both languages. Um, when I first started, I, I had my one one version of the uh, the YouTube channel was in French, and the other YouTube channel was in English. And at some point a year ago, I decided just to put the French uh, the French uh, platform on pause, just on hold for for a bit. It was a lot of work, you know, to maintain two platforms at once. And I just decided to just concentrate a bit more on the English channel since that one was doing better, anyways. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I decided just to. Uh, to focus on the on one thing instead of focusing on two. You know, this way I was able to uh, bring my channel up to level and release releasing at least one video per week, sometime more. And then I built I built up the channel this way and it came out pretty well up to so far so good anyways. Now I'm at the verge of on working on a online course, uh, maybe on Cubase and stuff. I'm a Cubase user, you know, I've been working with Cubase since it came maybe not since it came out, but since I started to uh, to do music production. Even if I learned on Pro Tools, I just, you know, jumped in on Cubase and that was my main DAW since then. So there's a lot of Cubase tips I have on my channel as well. And people appreciate that. So how do you think your YouTube channel complements what you do in the world of audio? What are some pros and cons to it? You know what? The pros, I would say that like my number one pro is the more you teach, the more you learn. Mm -hmm. That's my number one pro. Uh, you know, I've never learned so much since I started my YouTube channel. Um, meaning that, you know, I, re I recorded mixed like a bunch of albums over the years. And, you know, you get to a point that you just do stuff because you do stuff. You know, you put, you put in a compressor on the channel because... That's what you do. You know, you don't even think it, it's second nature. Mm -hmm. Okay, you just do it. It sounds good. That's what you want. And you, you know, maybe all the settings are correct and everything is fine. But when you start teaching, you, you ask yourself why you're doing so. And that is the different thing, you know, like, okay, why am I putting that compressor on that acoustic guitar? And why am I using that type of settings on my compressor? And why this compressor? You know, because you're going to have to explain that somehow to someone. <laughs> Someone's going to ask you the question right. when you're out there teaching. So I've learned a lot of stuff just because of my um, YouTube video productions. And at this point, how many subscribers do you have? I'm up to 5,700 subscribers wow. on my English channel. That's a, that's a chunk. No, oh, it's cool. It's not like it's not like the biggest channel, but still, you know, it's growing every day. And absolutely, uh, it's you know, it's always like YouTube is special. You know, there's a lot of stuff that needs to be learned. If you have a YouTube channel, it's it's challenging. You know, you have to work hard. It's hard work, and you do a lot of stuff for free. You know, you're invested a, a lot of your you invest a lot of your time, and that is the case for me. So I, you know, I have a bit of income out of YouTube, but it's very tiny, you know, it's not that much. So you're not doing that for the money. You're doing that 
you know, number one, to help people out and uh, to, to build something that can benefit you afterwards. Our time on this earth is limited, so you might as well leave something behind that's useful, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and it's fun because, it, you know, you get to, um, out of that adventure, that YouTube adventure, um, I ended up knowing you, you know, meeting you in Nashville because of that, you know. That's that's true. It's it's interesting. The mix down online and working class audio, had we not gone down those paths, we never would have met. Exactly. Or, I mean, it's maybe we would have met at some point, but not in the same capacity that no. we did. So that was... No, That's an exactly. interesting observation there, yeah. So yeah, there's a lot of positive when you look at it. Um, when As far as the relation goes and stuff like that, people you meet... Um, going at Nam at Summer Nam, you meet a lot of people, and that's because of the channel. Uh, that's the uh, all. Of, it's part of the entire benefit of having you know a social media platform somewhere. Now we know quite a bit of, as we've said earlier, podcasters, YouTubers, bloggers, mm -hmm. people that create online courses. When you got in it, were you aware that there were so many? I'll just say of, of those of us who are are doing this type of thing. I was aware, yeah, because I was one of the followers. I was one of the I'm still an audience, you know, so I still follow YouTubers in the same niche mm -hmm. that I am. And like a guy like Joel Gilder, you know, like I've been following Joel Gilder for quite a while, even way before the time I started my YouTube channel. Uh, same for Warren, where you were, same thing. Um, you know, Recording Revolution, uh, Graham Cochran. So all of these guys have been following since they started, you know. So yeah, I knew there was a lot of people doing the same thing in the same niche. Uh, but, you know, the way I look at it is, you know, if there's a lot of people doing the same thing in, in one niche, that need, that means that there's a demand, you know, more than a saturation. Yeah. People are still looking into these videos and they're still looking on the latest video on the same subject, you know. It's evident because if you look at, you know, Warren's produced like a pro, Ben and Fab doing Pure Mix, the mix with the Masters guys, um, you know, uh, like you said, Joe Gilder, Graham Cochran, people are hungry to learn. They are. How did you set the tone and, and the content for what you're doing, knowing that there's all this other stuff out there? I think something that helped me a lot was the fact that I'm working on Cubase. Hmm. Yeah, that that's what, you know, brings me apart from everyone else. Every, you know, most of, most of the people out there are working on Pro Tools, some on Studio One but there's not a lot of people working on Cubase. And so I know that a lot of people that follows me are Cubase users. And so, so yeah, so I, I have like a bunch of my videos that are Cubase tips, you know, so it's a Cubase related, related videos. And, but some other videos are going to be, you know, general mixing tips, recording tips, stuff like that, um, that can be, uh, can be good for anyone. Uh-huh. So like, even like, even Cubase, some Cubase tips, you know, someone who's using Pro Tools or Studio One can even enjoy these videos. They're going to get something out of them anyways. I was into Cubase around Cubase 4 when I was looking for an alternative to Pro Tools 7.4. Okay. And uh, was really enjoying it, but I, I kind of fell off the Cubase wagon for me personally. The interface started to get like, take, take a, a path that I wasn't into. And then Pro Tools started to really improve. And then I discovered yeah. Studio One. I didn't discover it. I, you know, <laughs> I joined, <laughs> you know, the many, many users who use it. It's not like I found it or anything. And now, as we discussed the other day when we were having a chat, mm -hmm. you know, I'm prepping stuff to take to mix with the masters to 
because that's one of the requirements is you've got to be in Pro Tools and show Chad Blake stuff that uh, I'll take with me. So it's actually caused me to revisit Pro Tools and that workflow and then have a compare and contrast moment with Studio One. Okay. Uh, Which version of Pro, of Pro Tools you work on? Currently, I'm on tw uh, HD 12.8. and Okay, um, good. I don't have any HD hardware, but I just have the software. And then I'm using the latest version of Studio One, version 3. But I'm also using logic too and i'm wondering um does it ever interest you to explore the other daws more in depth yeah it did yeah um i think of it sometimes but it's it's time consuming you know so it's relearn everything uh you know in a sense all daws you know they all do the same thing mm -hmm. um, so it's not super hard to, to to learn a new one but still you have to take the time to learn him correctly um i work on Pro Tools, you know, on several mixes. Uh, I know Pro Tools on when it's time to mix. Now, as far as editing, Pro Tools is not my thing. It's It has a different mentality, editing mentality than Cubase. And I'm, I'm a bit more used to the Cubase type of editing environment than the Pro Tools stuff. But for mixing, though, mixing on Pro Tools, I have no problem with. Mm. Uh, but a platform like Studio One is, I kind of get attracted to that kind of platform. It, in a sense, it looks a bit like Cubase. It does, and I think there's some people who worked on Cubase who had some involvement in that. I don't, I don't know that. That's what I heard too. I, I heard the same thing. I don't know the facts um, behind that, but that's what I've heard. I, and a few months ago, I even bought myself a copy of Harrison 32C. Yeah, what do you think of that? Um, I bought it because, well, like it was on a, I got a sale out of that DAW, so I got it for like for a hundred bucks, which is very cheap, and I just didn't get a chance to work with it. Mm. <laughs> but I would love to, you know, I heard a lot of good things about that, uh, that DAW, but I just, that's the thing, you know, I would love to learn some other DAW, but it's just the time. Yeah. It's the time. And once you get to know, once you know your DAW pretty well, you know, is there any use of learning another one? You know, in my case, that's why I, I, I picked up Logic because I had a couple clients who were like, hey man, if you get Logic, it'll be easier to send you mixes and I won't have to do yeah. all this, you know, prep for Pro Tools or Studio One and... Yeah, I guess if you have like work-related uh, work related reason to uh, to learn a new DAW, that it's worth it. To me, it's like another language and mm. they're all... It is. ...a variation on the theme. So once you kind of get, you know, how things work in one, you can kind of Google... Yeah, there's some similarities. You can Google sure. say like, you know, like, how do you do this in Logic, which equates to this in Pro Tools, and you can quickly find the answer. I know. It's funny because on my website, I have like free uh, mixing templates available for people to download for free. Um, now, I have one for Logic, one for Pro mm -hmm. Tools, and one for Cubase. So it was quite challenging, you know, working on the Logic one. Man, um, I had a hard time, you know, I had to, I had to call for some, for some help, you know, with a very good buddy of mine that uses logic, that knows logic pretty well. <laughs> you had to call, call for backup. So I asked, okay, how do we do that? You know, it's like, <laughs> I'm trying to do this and I just can't, you need to help me out here. Before we wrap up, I have a few questions about family and finance. Yeah. Tell me about your work-life balance. How do you make it all work with wife and kids and, you know, responsibilities as a parent? It is a challenge. But I kind of found, found my way um, out of it through the years, mm -hmm. you know, so at some point I had to, to learn the hard way, but it ended up um, going pretty well on that side. Um, now, you know, I work from home, so there's some advantages and there's some disadvantages as well. Mm -hmm. You know, you can get easily disturbed, 
by you know your your kids, your wife, because uh, you're in the same the same house. So there's a kind of uh, it, it's I see that as a teamwork with my family. Mm-hmm. You know, so uh, we're kind of working that as a team. Me, my wife, my kids, and uh, so when when daddy works downstairs, nobody is gonna go down to to ask him a question. You know, at least it's kind of a life or death type of thing. You know, but uh, <laughs> that's it. He's working, and and you know, all three of them. I have two daughters and and my wife, and all three of them respect that. You know, but in the other hand, when I'm done working downstairs, I'm 100% with my family. You know, so my I'm not always in the basement. I'm not always working in the studio like a freak. You know. Um, so I have my time with my family is my time with my family and I, I take the time Mm. to take care of them and to be with them and to, so I'm, we're very tight together. We're very close. And I think that is the key. It's kind of, you know, it's a a mutual kind of, I'm not going to say agreement, but, um, yeah, teamwork, you know? So that's the way I manage my time anyways, with my family and my work by working in the same, uh, in the same environment. Gotcha. And then finances, you know, what's your relationship with money like? And do you have any methods or ideas or concepts you you like to use to make yeah. sure that you stay afloat? Now, um, money. <laughs> so funny. Because <laughs> I've, yeah, <laughs> you see me moving. Eh? Um, I used to be way different than I am right now. I used to be like, like when I built up the studio, I used to be very emotional with money. Like, okay, I need that. You know, I need those speakers, you know. I need, you know, this type of equipment. So whatever it takes, I'm going to buy it. I'm going um, gonna to put that on a credit card if I have to. I don't mind, you know. So uh, I had like a very bad relation w- relationship with money. And now I'm completely different. Now I have more the Dave Ramsey type of mentality. Mm. You know, debt-free type of mentality. You know, don't, don't borrow money to buy an equipment, buy it cash or else don't just rent it, you know? Yeah. Uh, there are some rental shops, not, not too far. If I really need like that very big, high quality microphone, I'm just going to go rent it. So there's no reason for me to buy it if I don't have the money to buy it. So my mentality with money is you buy as you go and make sure you buy stuff cash. Um, so that's the way I base my money, uh, my money thing mm. now anyways. But again, I had to learn the hard way on that point. (laughs) (laughs) Haven't we all learned the hard way? Those of us that have these new ideas, right? Exactly. When it comes to um, routines or thing, you know, when you get up in the morning, do you, do you work out? Do you pray? Do you smoke pot? What, you know, what's your thing? (laughs) What's your thing to get yourself going in the morning? It depends when. It depends on like lately for the past couple of months. And this is something I did before, but I'm kind of getting back to that. Um, I wake up in the morning quite early. I'm up at 5, 5.30 mm-hmm. in the morning and I just go for a walk. That's the first thing I do. I just go for a walk. So I do my exercise in the morning right away. And then I come back home, I have a coffee with my, my wife because just before she uh, gets to work. I have my bulletproof coffee <laughs> and that's my... <laughs> That's my thing in the morning. And then I, I have my first meal at noon. And this way I keep myself to a maximum level of energy. Your first meal so. is at noon. Yeah. So I tend to, 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 to keep like a 16 hour fasting thing going on. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. That's interesting. So it, uh, Robert Scoville was on WCA number 140, actually okay. the, the previous episode. He okay. talked about trying to keep, uh, I think it was 12 hours between meals. Okay. Yeah. Type of thing. I'm not sure if that's the exact same thing you're doing, but... It's probably close. You know, it's, mine is a bit, maybe a bit longer. Okay. Uh, 16 hours of fasting instead of 12. But, you know, and 
it works well anyways. And and what um, do you get out of that? What do you get out of not eating the traditional three meals Now a day? it's the food subject. <laughs> <laughs> Again, you know, I had to learn the hard way, you know? Yeah. <laughs> My relationship with food wasn't the same back then and, than it is right now. If I go back four years ago, I used to weigh maybe 30, 35 pounds, you know, more than what I, what I am right now. And I lost out of these pounds and I never gained them back by changing my eating habits. Mm. And I did a lot of research on food and, you know, that was a, a two, three years of learning process, you know, just to, to learn a lot of stuff. There's so many things, you know, that so many perspectives, so many ideas and like everyone has his, its own ideas on, on how you, we should eat and stuff. And, um, I, you know, I just came up with my own conclusions on that and just be very disciplined on what I eat. And when I, there's some, some time I just don't follow my diet, you know, carefully. I just get back to it right after. And, uh, and th- what I get out of it, though, is focus. Mm-hmm. I tend to focus way more on my work. I sleep better, uh, way more energy. You know, we kind of eliminated all, process, all type of uh, processed food in the house. Uh, we tend to, to eat a lot of veggies, a lot of grass-fed meat. The more organic, the better. Yeah. Okay, that, that's the, you know, we, we tend to get close to our food, the food we buy. So we have local markets, we love farms, we, we buy food from a butcher, you know, a, a farm we're going to buy the, the, uh, the beef, you know, from and have it to a close by butcher which is, is going to fix that meat for us and it's grass fed and stuff like that, you know. So, so that's the type of thing we're, we're in and we, we really enjoy it, you know. We, like my wife, like she, she used to be a, a deep sleep, not, not, okay, not a deep sleep, but she, she used to sleep like for a long time in the morning. Okay. She used to like, it, it was very easy for her to wake up at noon or 11 a.m. until she changed her eating habits and until she, 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 she went more into a type of a paleo type of thing. And she, you know, we, we, we now on weekends take walks at 7 a.m. You know, she's all awake and full of energy just because of food. It's crazy. Did you eliminate a lot of sugars in your in your diet by chance? A lot of sugars, yeah. Okay. A lot of um, refined sugars and all of these things. And we eliminated um, almost all grains. Really? So we don't, yeah, we don't eat pasta. We don't eat bread. Wow. The only bread I'm going to eat, though, is the, um, there, there's one brand which is made of ancient grains. Um, I think the brand is called Ezekiel, Ezekiel Bread. Okay. It's, yeah, it's from the... The recipe is out of the Bible, actually. It's a Jewish company that started that. Hmm. And uh, it's made out of non-GMO ancient grains. So that's the only bread I'm going to eat. And even then, you know, I just have, I have it maybe once a week, you know. Hmm. But most of the time, it's, you know, a lot of good fats, like my bulletproof coffee in the morning. <laughs> yeah. That keeps me energized and focused. That feeds my brain pretty well. So, Are there any quotes whether they're French or English quotes that, you know, inspire you, you know, and on that same topic, if you don't have any quotes, are there any people in, specifically out in the world, whether in music or entertainment or hmm. any other part of life that inspire you? You know, one guy, one person that inspired me a lot in the past year and a half, it's business related, it's, you know, social media related. It's since I've been doing that work on YouTube, uh, Gary Vaynerchuk. Okay. Uh, I'm a big fan. Gary V. He's called, you know, he goes by Gary V most of the time. Um, he's that business guy in New York, a Russian immigrant, mm-hmm. was born uh, was born in Russia, immigrated here at five years old. And he's like that type of social media geek. And um, so, he's, you know, he says as, as it is, and this is what I like about him, you know, and that cranked me up big time. 
um, to run the business, my own business here in the studio with, uh, my, with recording and stuff and the, you know, the time I, I take to, to run the YouTube channel as well. Mm -hmm. So that helped me a lot. And, you know, he like, he has like a bunch of quotes, you know, like, for example, you know, stop complaining. Nobody cares. That could be one of them. <laughs> okay. So you get the picture. So, I, so, you know, I don't have enough time. You know, it's too hard. Like, you know, nobody cares. Just do it. Yeah. So there you go. Okay. That's my quote. I like that. <laughs> well, on that note, I think somebody will care about our, our interview. I hope so. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, hey, man, thanks, Chris. It's it's great to chat with you and kind of dig deep into these these questions with you. So I appreciate you taking the time to be on the show. And for the audience, you got to check out Chris online. You got to check out uh, Mixdown dot online or just you know Google Mixdown online. You can also check him out on his YouTube channel and Facebook, of course, and follow him on Twitter. Uh, he's at Mixdown Online, capital M, capital O. And he's also on Instagram at I am Chris Salim. Uh, so, uh, or at I am Chris Salim, however Instagram does it, whatever. You know what I mean? Um, so thanks again, Chris. I appreciate it. Hey, Matt, it was a blast. Thanks again. And uh, great to see you. Great to see you uh, too, uh, Matt. It was, a, it was very good to be, uh, to be part of the podcast. And thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. All right. Talk to you later. Chris Salem here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Great to have Chris on. Uh, got a few things to tell you. Make sure and subscribe over on iTunes. If you like the show, of course, leave a nice review. We're also on Stitcher and, of course, Android. And uh, also, when you're at the at the Working Class Audio website, please sign up for our email list, uh, and you'll get emails about new episodes, exclusive content, and automatically be entered into WCA giveaways. So, uh, yeah, so do that. Do all that stuff. Do all that social media stuff, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all that. Hey, we are out of time, so we got to thank everybody. we got to thank, of course, uh, Cliff Truesdell and uh, Cole Williams and Chuck Smith. And we want to thank our sponsors, of course, Audio-Technica, Universal Audio, Focal Monitors, Lawton Audio, and Gearsluts.com. And uh, thanks for listening. I do appreciate it. So uh, you know the drill. Take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like, and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.